Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, I was a guest on his show. Now he's a guest on mine. Dr. Michael Ruscio is a doctor of natural medicine. Uh, he has a, a show called Dr. Ruscio Radio, Health, Nutrition, and Functional Medicine. He's a doctor of chiropractic, doctor of natural medicine, a clinical researcher, and an author. And he has published work in various peer-reviewed medical journals. He's a committee member of the Naturopathic Board of Gastroenterology Research. So, Dr. Ruscio, thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, tell me a bit about your background. What led you to do you know, a radio show and become an author and a speaker instead of just a doctor only? Yeah, thank you. It, it was a little bit of a circuitous path where I, I started off wanting to go actually into conventional medicine, probably into orthopedics. I, I come from a sports background, and, and that's really what interests me, things like pain and biomechanics and function, or at least what interested me when I was in my early 20s. And uh, long story short, I ended up obtaining, luckily, a intestinal parasite. And I say luckily because it really diverted my path to finding my passion, which was gut health, because I learned uh, a painful lesson of having brain fog, insomnia, and depression, all coming from this intestinal parasite, which eluded a lot of diagnosis or, or, or uh, investigation because I wasn't having diarrhea, which you would expect with an amoeba, which is what I had. So it took me a little while to find someone who posed that as an idea. And it was someone in the naturopathic medical community. At first, I thought the doctor was nuts because I had no gut symptoms, but I learned that you can have silent gut inflammation that's only manifesting, let's say neurologically as it was in my case. And we see this in models of celiac research where some gluten intolerance only manifests as neurological or dermatological manifestations and does not manifest with gut symptoms. So I had learned that it really prompted me to pivot the field I wanted to go into. And as I started doing training in that field, I, I liked a lot of what I learned, but after uh, you know some years in my internship and then a few years in clinical practice, I noticed I, I wasn't so keen on a number of things as many in the field were. And I ended up going on Rob Wolf's podcast. He wrote the paleo solution is like a New York times bestseller you know, back at this time and went on his podcast just to kind of share with him my thoughts. And after that, we had 250 phone calls or emails within a month. And I was like, wow, okay, people are really resonating with this and, and looking for- a well, I hope I can, get, I can get you anywhere close to that. But. It really showed me that people were wanting other solutions than conventional medicine with nothing at all against conventional medicine, but you know, a, a different paradigm. But within that different paradigm, they also wanted a little bit of a different method than they were getting. And what I was doing was really apparently resonating with people. And that showed me I needed to do more than just have my head down in my clinical practice. And so I started a, a podcast and a website and also started writing what was supposed to be like a 60 page ebook. And it turned into a 300 some odd page full on book with just under a thousand references. 
Uh, that became my my book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You. And um, you know, the more I started talking about how we can do natural medicine better at a lower cost with less uh, inculcation into thinking you have to avoid tons of foods or pop tons of supplements, I started getting very good feedback from consumers and providers alike. And that's kind of the short story of, of how I got here to where we're not only seeing patients in the clinic, me and, and the other doctors at the office, but we're also collecting our data, publishing in journals, and also trying to educate the public via blogs and our podcast. But why do you think you didn't stick to the traditional route and, and they say alternatives and say, that's not how I was trained. I'm going to do traditional clinical work and follow standard of care. I mean, a lot of most practitioners do. How come you didn't? Well, I think it was twofold. I deviated from the path of conventional medicine just due to the fact that that's where I was going. And I saw three doctors in the conventional model and none of them could help me and and all well-to-do and and very nice people, but no one could really pinpoint my problem until I turned to the kind of naturopathic integrative community. But there's also a kind of a standard of care there. It's less defined as conventional medicine, but there's also this sort of standard of care. And you know what I noticed there was it, it seemed to be a lot of following of the leader and it was expert informed rather than being data driven. So, you know, the expert says the, the person on the podium at, at the continuing education seminar or the, the supplement company or lab company funded weekend seminar, you know, the, the person behind the podium was the expert and that's what drove consensus rather than it being a data driven consensus. And I think that's one of the main reasons why people have enjoyed and resonated with my work was it, it wasn't about the expert and sometimes the experts are right. Sometimes they're not, but really following the data as, as honestly and, and earnestly as we could, you know, I think that's what led me to deviate because as I started reading more and more of the, the direct research, not what the expert, you know, recapitulated as his summary or, or her summary of the research, but the actual primary literature, oftentimes I would have an opinion slightly at odds with expert consensus opinion. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's how I kind of found my way there. So what, uh, what topics in health are not only commonplace, but very deleterious, but also gaslit a lot yeah. by the traditional medical community that we can discuss. Well, I, I think it's, you know, again, I think a lot of this is, is actually more so being done incorrectly by the integrative functional community, however you want to label it. And one of these, and it's really quite specious, is the overutilization or, or the, the overpromise of what testing can tell us. We've got to test your adrenals. We've got to test your gut volume. We've got to test your hormones. You've got to test your methylation and detox pathways. And when you actually fact check these tests, you'd be fairly surprised how inaccurate or lacking the scientific validity behind some of these tests are. And even some of these tests have been shown to be outright incorrect. I mean, using one lab, I'll, I'll not save the name unless you'd like me to name them specifically. They're now shut down. They were a very popular microbiome assessment stool company. And I recommended people not use them for years, even though they were vastly popular. And once the company was closed down due to insurance billing violations, but while the investigation into those violations was going on, they also uncovered that the normative ranges for saying your stool is healthy or your stool is not healthy partially used dog feces to establish the normative range for humans, which is just insane that that actually happened. So this is one example of many, many patients were 
trying to treat their lab results, not realizing that part of what was used to establish a normal stool from an abnormal stool was literally dog poop. That's abnormal, I would think, hopefully, for most labs. But what do you do if, um, so you're saying don't go and have labs done and then freak out if the labs say you need to do X, Y, or Z. I mean, what, what do you do then? How do you do an accurate assessment of what's working, what you need? So at the clinic, we use a four-component model to make decisions in terms of how we treat people, what diets we recommend, what supplements or other therapeutics we recommend. And this is their history as one, their symptoms as another, their response to treatment as a third, and lab testing as a fourth. And what that does is it gives the appropriate weighting to how much value we assign to lab testing. So if we can use that that model, that four-component model... And if you notice, most of that is information about the person, which is why we say we treat people, not numbers. The person's history, their symptoms, their response to treatment, that's 75% of the data that is needed to make a decision. And then that can be accented by lab testing. If If we're also careful to only use labs that have the appropriate validation, then that makes us even more effective than, let's say, treating the test that was later found to be snake oil and and really filtering for only the tests that have been validated and found to be effective, but also making sure the primary objective is that we treat the person and not the numbers. Cause there's nothing worse than dropping one or $2,000 treating those numbers and then reporting back to your doctor and saying, I don't feel any differently, which happens more often than you would think. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the finding genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. But again, what are you supposed to do? If you don't feel well, then treat. If you feel fine, even though a number looks high or low, don't treat. I'm not sure what to what to do. Yeah, so it's a great question. I'm glad you're asking because we should drill down on this. We use, uh, again, the person's history. When did these symptoms start? Did these symptoms start when you moved into a new home? Or did they start after a trip to Mexico when you got food poisoning? That one piece of historical data is incredibly telling. If someone moves into a new home and notices they don't feel well, it's possible that there could be some sort of environmental pollutant in that home like mold. If their symptoms started after they went to Mexico and had food poisoning, this could be what's known as post-infectious IBS. And here's another example. I'll just throw out a few to give you an idea of what this looks like. Someone could come in and let's say they're having lots of GI symptoms, gas, bloating, abdominal pain, reflux, maybe some insomnia as a byproduct of that. And that insomnia leads them to have fatigue because they're not sleeping well. And they've gotten themselves onto a very restrictive diet because they've read about gluten being bad, dairy being bad, oxides being bad, histamine being bad, FODMAPs being bad, psilocytes being bad. So they end up on this highly restrictive diet. And when they come into our office, we see all those symptoms combined with a very restrictive diet, combined with occasionally feeling dizzy or dizziness when standing. And for these patients, oftentimes 
what we'll need to do is give them electrolytes because they are electrolyte insufficient due to under eating, have them expand their diet because oftentimes these people are too low calorie and or too low carb, and then use some simple evidence-based gut supports like probiotics and perhaps uh, something like an elemental diet reset. And you can see symptomatic resolution within days to weeks. And none of this required lab testing to figure out. So I appreciate your question. It's also demonstrative of how inculcated the field has become into thinking that you can't treat a patient unless you have a lab value to treat. And that's actually, it's the opposite of what the majority of clinical trial data informs is not how to treat lab markers. The majority, not all, but the majority of clinical trials, which are the pinnacle of evidence, actually show us how to treat constellations of symptoms or, or people and, and patterns of symptoms they present with rather than treating a lab value. Okay. So, I mean, what, what are some common complaints people come to you with? And, uh, you know, I know everyone's different, but what's common? What are you seeing a lot of and what are, appears to be resolutions for a lot of it? Well, again, coming back to the, the prior example or, or some uh, borrowing from the prior examples, it's common to see any array of digestive symptoms. You may see bloating, abdominal pain, and constipation. And that's occurring along with fatigue and brain fog. Now, I know, and we at the clinic know, and, and there's a lot of published evidence showing that people who have bloating and constipation and fatigue and insomnia can see resolution of those by going on a low FODMAP diet as one example. We also know that probiotics can help with all of those symptoms. So we'll have someone go on a low FODMAP diet for, let's say, three weeks and follow up. And oftentimes we'll see, generally speaking, a 30 to 50% improvement in their symptoms after making that one simple dietary change, no testing. Great. You're doing 30 to 50% better. Let's now layer on top of that probiotics. Constipation gets even better. Abdominal pain gets even better. They start sleeping better. They have less fatigue and less brain fog. Also been shown in a number of clinical trials that probiotics can help with constipation, abdominal pain, with sleep, with cognition. And in two months, you may be able to get to a 60, 70% improvement in symptoms without any testing, solely personalizing the treatments based upon the person and not the labs. And I'm not saying that we don't use any labs, but unfortunately, that same scenario that I just outlined, someone could do adrenal, and we see this shockingly often, they could do adrenal testing, gene testing, and stool testing. And that could actually lead them to do the wrong things. Well, you have low diversity on your stool test. Let's give you a bunch of prebiotics. And then that flares their bloating because patients with IBS tend to have a high prevalence of adverse events to prebiotics. So by treating the person's labs and not treating the person, you actually give them a therapy, let's say in this case, a prebiotic, that's more likely to flare them because you're not treating them, you're just treating a lab. So I hope that, you know, I'm not getting too detailed, but, but some of that's making sense. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I don't know how you do it. Normal doctors are not going to do this. In order to get insurance reimbursement and all that, they're going to have to do tests and then they can only treat to the tests. The whole medical system is not set up for what you're doing. So nothing wrong with it. And your way definitely sounds better, but you know, if someone's not cash pay, if someone has a regular doctor, how are they supposed to navigate this? No, that, that's not actually true. Uh, a fair facet of medicine is not based upon lab testing. Lab testing is not cost effective. So if we're talking about conventional medicine, and again, I'm trying to delineate between 
natural and functional alternative medicine versus conventional medicine, but even conventional medicine will oftentimes try a therapy before running a test. There are some tests that are inexpensive and highly validated, like a cholesterol screening, a, a thyroid screening that have their merit. But especially when we get into the realm of, of GI, a lot of those tests don't offer merit. And let's take as one example, rifaximin, which is FDA approved to treat IBS with no lab market required. That's just one example. Uh, and there's many, if we're going to talk conventional medicine, there's antispasmodic drugs that are used before, preferentially before doing something like a colonoscopy uh, or other invasive uh, screenings. So I, I don't think it's fully accurate to say that conventional medicine uses a testing first model. It's normally a, and this is to some extent, conventional medicine may do this better than integrative medicine. I think conventional medicine has, you know, it's it shortcomings, of course, but uh, using a therapeutic trial first is what occurs in a fair number of cases. It depends. I mean, if you have someone with a family history of colorectal cancer or inflammatory bowel disease, and they fit a certain age and risk profile, then that may prompt, you know, a quick colonoscopy or, or what have you. But, um, you know, there, there's many a case where a simple therapeutic trial, as in IBS using rifaximin, the antibiotic, uh, happens first before testing is done. I don't know. I've seen the opposite. You take a cholesterol test, it's out of the range, they put you on Lipitor or whatever it is. You do a, 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 you know, a calcium score in your heart, it's high, they put you on more stuff. You want to say you have diabetes, oh, well, we have to do a glucose tolerance test. Otherwise, we can't diagnose you, we can't treat you. So it seems to be a lot of traditional medicine is like, we do nothing unless we test. Once we test, we just, you know, we, we practice to the test. And that's what yeah, we and, treat and, in and those numbers. Yeah, and those are all really fair examples. Certainly, cholesterol screenings, a basic blood panel, but I'm assuming most of your audience, and maybe I'm misreading the audience here, but most of the audience has probably had those tests. They've had those tests treated, and now they're searching for other answers. And this is where they go into exploratory testing in the integrative medical community. And this is where testing, especially in the realm of gut health, has some serious limitations. Uh, and this is what I'm trying to make people more aware of. And you know, one of the things that we had on our uh, we had on our list to discuss was kind of the gut thyroid connection. We're writing up a six patient case series to publish in a medical journal now of patients who had boatloads of testing because they were on thyroid medication and they still weren't feeling well. And they finally found their way to our clinic. And we went through this simple process of listening to the person and personalizing recommendations to them based upon their history and their symptoms. And we're able to resolve their symptoms. And in about half of these cases, get them off thyroid hormone because they weren't even hypothyroid to begin with. They were incorrectly diagnosed based upon misreading the tests. Um, and so, so that's, that's what I mean. Uh, I think you're getting a lot of the fallout of people that have been tested and have been given medications and maybe they're experiencing drug induced nutrient depletion or other effects from the drugs. And then you got to go in and fix them, but you're not getting them straight out of the gate. It sounds like you're getting them after they've gone through all this stuff and maybe even additional rounds of testing. Yeah. So it's, it's very important to clarify uh, because there's good preliminary screenings that are, are being done via basic blood work. And people want to have those. They want to be screened for diabetes, hypothyroid, anemia, but these are simple and cheap tests. These tests are firstly, they're, they're very accurate. 
right? Screening for diabetes is extremely accurate for thyroid when you don't use wonky interpretation criteria and use standard interpretation criteria, very accurate. Anemia, very accurate. And people should do this. And this is where I think conventional medicine does a good job. But it's when you check those boxes of the basic cheap preliminary tests and you're still searching for answers, what people then do next, unfortunately, is get a barrage of inaccurate integrative medical testing that can oftentimes be cash pay or usually cash pay. People end up spending thousands of dollars not to get any better because unfortunately, lab companies seem to have done a very good job of marketing to doctors, kind of like pharmaceutical companies are oftentimes criticized for skewing conventional medical care. This same thing is happening in integrative medicine where labs are funding weekend seminars and other continuing ed uh, training and leading to this model of frivolous use of elaborate and non-validated testing. And that's what I'm trying to make people aware of. But to your point, this doesn't mean that if your doctor thinks you have diabetes or anemia, that you should say, well, we, we don't do any testing. That, that's the testing that has merit. It's the, the array of testing beyond that that I'm trying to sound the alarm regarding. Oh, yeah, that's more clear. That makes sense. Yeah. At some point, if you've done tons of tests and all that and you're not getting better, well, there's got to be something else going on. So sounds like that's where you, you come in. Exactly. And, and that has its most pertinence as it pertains to gut health, which, you know, which is the, the area that I'd really like for people to, to be aware of as a common cause of symptoms. You know, if, if you've had the conventional screening, if your diet and lifestyle are in halfway decent order, and you're still struggling with an array of symptoms, it's not to say there's a 100% guarantee here, but looking into your gut health is it's probably the next most important thing to do. And, and just to give some stats behind this, irritable bowel syndrome affects about 15% of the population. A broad term known as functional gastrointestinal disorders. So this is really most GI conditions, whether it be IBS, reflux, constipation, right? If we lump all those together, that's 40% of the population. Compare that to hypothyroidism, which affects 1% of the population. But what often happens is if people have seen a few doctors, had the basic blood work done, and they're not feeling well, they're oftentimes told that it's likely hypothyroid driving it. And sadly, any investigation into what could be going on in the gut is not performed, even though problems in the gut are 15 to 40 times more likely to be present and to be driving the symptoms than something like hypothyroid. So just trying to make people aware of, of some of these facets so that as they're starting into their healthcare journey, they have some mooring in, in terms of where they direct their focus and um, maybe understand some, some red flags of caution to be, to be cognizant of. Yeah, I know. I understand. Like I, I got tests from Ubiome years ago, and it was just useless. They, you know, I, I understand they couldn't interpret too much, but they just tell you, oh, you've got these bacteria in you and this prevalence. And then they like, okay, what do you do with that? Well, we can't tell you what to do. And now some new microbiome companies, they'll say, oh, eat these foods and avoid these foods based on what your gut's saying and all that. But it does seem to be like a black box. And, you know, like you get prebiotics, so you get probiotics, you get refrigerated, non-refrigerated, you know, which species are important, which ones are not, do they survive the stomach acid, when do you take them, how do you know if it's working, so it's, it does seem to be like a very nebulous area so far. It is, yeah, and I think it gets even more challenging when, uh, you know, to your point, people do a bunch of labs, and then 
they end up treating those lab markers rather than looking at their symptoms and understanding that there's a, a few dietary changes that can be very helpful, let's say for IBS, a basic elimination diet or a low FODMAP diet. And you can start there and, and just use, use the person, right? Read them. Uh, it's almost like saying, you know, you go to a physical therapist and you're saying, well, I've got ankle pain. And they're like, well, we need to do an MRI. I have ankle pain. Can't we do some rehab for my ankle? Yeah, we got really got to do the MRI first. You know, that that's almost akin to what's happening in gut care, where if people say I have bloating and constipation, we know great supports for that. There's not a need to go do a bunch of testing akin to an MRI before doing a, a basic ankle rehab plan, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. That's what I, that's all I hear is uh, we got to test, 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 and then we can do stuff. It just seems like, again, most of traditional medicine, that's what it's like. They won't do anything unless they test. And then you look up in the cookbook and see what the recipe says to do. Your lab says this or that, and that's what they do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's go back to, uh, you were talking about thyroid and gut health. You know, from what I understand, uh, T4, the thyroid hormone is converted, quote unquote, in the gut to T3, but I don't know which bacteria do it. I don't know if there's literature on it. What helps or hurts the conversion rate? And, you know, how does that impact people with thyroid issues? Yeah, this is a great question. And I'm, I'm glad you raised this because this is oftentimes, in my opinion, used as, as kind of a, a ploy to get, to, to pull people into more elaborate use of thyroid hormone medication or thyroid treatment. The issues with conversion are, are probably only relevant for 10% or maybe less of individuals. And, and this is because there, there's about 10% of individuals who genetically are poor at converting T4 to T3. So for a small subset, 10%, this may be an issue. But to your point, because there are things that can be done to heal the gut and the liver, both of which have an impact on conversion, I'm assuming that that, that 10%, maybe even less, maybe even closer to five, perhaps, because there are things that can be done to optimize conversion through improving one's health. So conversion, it is, it is an issue, but um, where we've seen a lot of problems, and, and so th there's one great case study from one of the doctors at our office, Dr. Joe Mather. This is was such a choice example because he had this patient who came in hypothyroid. I believe she initially came in on, um, I think it was Synthroid. And she was still having symptoms. Uh, I don't recall the exact symptom presentation, but something like fatigue and, and depression, uh, maybe some uh, bowel issues also. So he then tried her on something that accounts for conversion, like a nature thyroid that has both T4 and T3. So if this lady was not converting well, he's now giving her the thyroid hormone that has both the T4 and what it converts into the T3. And she actually got worse. And so then he went back to a different form of T4, levothyroxine, still wasn't feeling well. Then added Cytomel, which is T3, still wasn't feeling well. And over a year, Dr. Mather kept trying to personalize and, and really optimize her conversion through different forms of medication and also using things like selenium, which may help with conversion and ashwagandha. And she really didn't get any better until he treated her with herbal antimicrobials, which are these uh, herbal compounds that are similar to antibiotics and can help clean out bacterial overgrowths and things like fungus and candida out of the gut. And when he did that, within a month, she had a dramatic change in how she was feeling. And, and so in this case, there was all this work to try to optimize conversion. 
but a problem in the gut was overlooked. And when addressing that, she responded fine to something simple like levothyroxine, which is what she came in initially. What was going on? Was it a bacteria that assisted conversion you think was low prevalence or what do you, why was it fixed? But I, I think you're, you're getting a little bit too detailed than, than really is needed to inform clinical practice. We know that patients who have digestive symptoms don't absorb their medication well, likely due to a degree of leaky gut and just damage to the lining of, of the gut. And so when they're not absorbing their medication well, it's very hard for them to feel better because you're giving them a tablet of 25 micrograms, but they're only absorbing, let's say 17 of it. So until you heal their gut, what absorbs the medication, it's very hard for them to improve. So rather than um, trying to get into the nuances of bacteria, we go a little bit further upstream, which is, is there a frank overgrowth, something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, similar to an infection? Is there a leaky gut? Let's fix that. And then that tends to resolve issues downstream, like some of the nuanced balances of, of bacteria ratios. Okay. So, I mean, there's still bacterial action, but you're handling it more of in a, uh, I guess, more of a holistic way instead of like, oh, we need more, you know, bifidus, longus, whatever it is to do the conversion, just in general, improving the gut health with the right foods seems to take care of itself. Yeah. And, you know, it really doesn't work that, that way in terms of we can micromanage the levels of bacteria. And this is something I wrote about in Healthy Gut, Healthy You. And I try to list this as a simple principle in that we, we can't micromanage an ecosystem. We can't improve or increase this one bacteria level and decrease that one. There's a thousand some odd bacteria in the gut. So thinking it's like going into a rainforest and thinking that you can reduce populations of one flower and improve them of another vine plant. Uh, it, it's just not, not really how one would tend a garden or would repair an ecosystem, but you'd be looking at more causative upstream factors, right? Is there some sort of infection in the soil? Is there, has there been a drought? Is there uh, um, a lot of sun more, way more than normal? And is this causing you know, death of some of the foliage because the, the sun penetration is too high? That's really the way to approach this because then the garden or the ecosystem kind of takes care of itself once the appropriate environmental factors are tended to. So what have you found? What kind of um, gut interventions or probiotics work and which ones don't and why? Any insights there? Yeah, there have been a couple of trials that have used probiotics and have found that after supplementing with probiotics, there's a reduction in TSH levels in a lower dose of thyroid hormone required. And they're not using special probiotics. There's a couple of different studies that have looked at this and they've used different probiotics in each. I believe they're they're both blends of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, something like a, a VisBiome or a VSL3 would be examples of this type of probiotic. And we use a categorization system to help simplify and, and provide a heuristic for people to better understand probiotics so that they don't make the mistake of chasing down a special formula and understand that there's formula types and you want to try one of each of the formula types and, and the specificity of the species or strains doesn't really seem to matter. And I, I can reinforce that more in a moment if you want, but the, the category system is one, two, three. One is a blend of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium species. You'll see anywhere from seven to 15 different species. The exact blend doesn't seem to make a big difference. And this has been bore out by a couple of meta-analyses. 
but as long as you have a blend of predominantly lactobacillus species and bifidobacterium species, this is your category one. Category two, uh, and sorry, so category one example again would be VSL3 or Visbiome, two very popular well-researched probiotics. Category two is something akin to Florastor, which is actually not a bacteria, it's a fungus, Saccharomyces boulardii. And that's another probiotic type to consider and to try. And then category three is a soil-based probiotic. And this will have various bacillus species like bacillus coagulans, bacillus subtilis. Some formulas have one species, some have up to five. The exact species doesn't tend to matter as long as you're using a quality formula. And what we recommend people do is attempt to use three different formulas at the same time. If you picture in your mind a stool like you would sit on, one leg of support could be thought of as one probiotic formula. It can support balance in the gut ecosystem, but it's a little bit wobbly. We found in the clinic that using three different formulas together is akin to three different legs of support trying to balance the stool or balance the gut ecosystem. So that's your lactobacillus and bifidobacterium blend plus your Saccharomyces boulardii, plus your soil-based probiotic. And we've been finding, again, in the clinic, and we are currently collecting data to try to publish on this, that that seems to be more effective than using one formula alone. So that's that's the way we recommend using probiotics. Hmm, okay. So you'll give the patients all three of these, and all three together seems to restore a lot of issues. Yes, unless they're someone who's very sensitive and reactive. And then in that case, we'll start with one formula at a time, assess tolerance. And as long as they tolerate the formula, we'll then add a second, assess tolerance, and then add a third. And that's, yeah, that's, that's the way that we're uh, using probiotics. And it does seem to be more effective than, than one formula alone. And to come back briefly, if we don't mind to the, the question of, you know, are there specific formulas or species or strains that are the most important or best for XYZ outcome? We've done a fairly robust review on this. And the answer there seems to be no. And I think where, where some of the opinion that you do need to have a specific formula, species, or strain comes from is from market influences, meaning a company that owns a certain formula or a certain species and does one study showing one finding will then herald that as the probiotic for, let's say, constipation. But what's interesting and what's been interesting to observe is that Okay, maybe five years ago, there was only one probiotic that had published research showing it could help constipation. And so that company, as I would expect, was proud of that research finding and they promoted their specific formula as the best formula for constipation. But six months later, a different formula also showed benefit for constipation. And then three months later, a different formula also found benefit for constipation. And then another few months later, a group of researchers wanted to use two different probiotics, right? They gave one group probiotic A, the other group probiotic B, and they both showed comparable outcomes for constipation. So as the probiotic literature has become more robust and sophisticated, it's very hard to say that one formula is the best for one outcome that makes it much more difficult for patients to find competent care because they're trying to sort through all these marketing claims that usually trickle back to pharmaceutical houses that have funded research, which is great, right? The, the research is great, but what's left out of the equation when the sales reps or the, the educators educate doctors about this is that, well, we're telling you about our formula, 
that has been shown help for constipation, but we're not going to tell you about the three other formulas that were published also showing benefit for constipation. And so the doctors are getting mixed messaging and patients are getting mixed messaging, thinking that probiotics act like drugs, meaning, you know, you have Advil for pain, you have uh, Lipitor for cholesterol, you know, what have you. And that's, you know, really not the way probiotics work. Probiotics help to balance out and heal the gut and problems in the gut can manifest as issues neurologically, as I learned, or skin issues or joint pain. Uh, so there, there's a number of symptomatic manifestations that can be outgrowths of what is happening in the gut, but to balance the gut using a comprehensive and broad spectrum probiotic seems to be what works best and not looking at probiotics like drugs to have specific end actions of antidepressive or anti-constipative uh, anti or, or what have you. So what, what percentage of people don't seem to be helped even by this uh, multifaceted probiotic approach? Good question. I'm hoping that we can quantify an answer to that with this cohort that we're collecting data on. Uh, I can estimate, and I, I wouldn't say it's a helped or not helped, but I, I think it's, a, it's an issue of degrees. There are some who don't see any response to probiotics. I'm guessing that's 20 to maybe 30% of individuals. In that other, let's say, 70th percent of individuals for maybe half of that 70% probiotics are hugely beneficial. And then for the other half, they'll see an improvement, but it's not sufficient to fully resolve their problem. And this is also, I think a real clinical pearl, if I may describe it as such, in that sometimes people are looking for one therapy, let's say probiotics to resolve their symptoms completely. And if they don't, they conclude that it didn't help or it wasn't the right fit. And that's not the right way to look at this. We should be rather looking at, okay, did we gain 20% with diet? Awesome. Keep the diet as is. Did we gain another 30% with probiotics? Great. Keep that as is. And now we can layer on an additional therapy. So not looking to have one therapy that is a home run and resolves everything. It's great when that happens, but rather looking for incremental wins on our way toward hitting our goal. And just as one quick support for this, Rifaxim, and I mentioned earlier, it's an antibiotic that's FDA approved. Not that I think the FDA is the end all be all, but just to reference it for IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Now that antibiotic has about a 50th percent resolution rate for IBS and specifically for SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Correspondingly, probiotics also demonstrate about a 50% resolution rate for SIBO. However, if you combine probiotics with rifaximin, you see a resolution rate of about 85%. And this is the way we think through things at the clinic is we're not looking for one therapy to solve everything, but we'll start with diet. How's that going? Okay. Then we'll consider layering on probiotics. And now maybe we get to a 50% resolution rate of SIBO. And if the person is still not improved, we'll then consider laying on something like rifaximin or an herbal equivalent like oregano oil and get to that 85% resolution rate. And this seems to be the really effective path of you know, personalizing and sequentially building someone a, a healthcare program rather than looking for one therapy to be a you know, smash home run. It's nice when it happens, but it, that doesn't seem to be the majority of cases. Since you, you recommend probiotics quite a bit, what about fermented foods? Is there a way to 
Yes. The test without taking anything off the shelf, just to have, you know, sauerkraut and kimchi and all that stuff. Does that help? Yes. So glad you mentioned that. Absolutely. I, I think fermented foods and a variety of them are a great dietary staple for everyone to consider. Sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, kefir. Yes. These are definitely things that can and, and do help. They provide bacteria. They, they do have a significantly lower dose than what you would find in a probiotic, but that doesn't mean that everyone's going to need that. Someone with just minimal symptoms and minimal presumed imbalances in their gut may benefit just from making some simple dietary changes, including probiotic foods. But if someone is in need of a bit more of a clinical intervention, probiotic foods have about a fourth to an eighth probi- uh, you know, probiotic in them as compared to something like a capsule of a probiotic. So it's something, it's viable, it can help, and it's definitely a staple and a foundation. It may not be sufficient for people with more moderate to severe symptoms or imbalances. Okay. I don't know. What's next? Are you able to help all the people that you want to help within your clinic? I know that you know there's many more that haven't come to your clinic yet, but of the patients you have, are you able to do enough for them in your mind? Or is there still more that you have to figure out? Uh, there, I mean, there's always more to figure out. And, and there's always a, a subset of patients who don't respond well. And I think any, any clinician who's being honest will, will admit that. What we're trying to do is progressively over time, make sure that we have smaller and smaller blind spots in our clinical model. So we're always on the lookout and trying to figure out for that smaller subset of patients that don't respond well, what can we do? I'll give one quick example of something that over the past couple of years has been very helpful for some of that challenging subset. It's known as limbic retraining therapy or amygdala retraining therapy. And essentially, if you have someone who, especially someone who's had any history of abuse, either physical or um, emotional, psychological abuse, plus a period where they're not feeling well, they can become hyper-focused on their health and how they're feeling. And this can actually lead to a imbalance in their nervous system that makes them hyper-reactive to food and hyper-reactive to supplements. And this limbic retraining looks similar to meditation, but is, is distinctly different can actually be a, a godsend for some of these patients. And we, we just published a, a YouTube video with one of our patients, Danielle. If you, if you look up my name and Danielle, you should find it fairly, fairly easily. Um, and she had been kind of through the ringer and seen many doctors, seen some results at our clinic, but she didn't really get over the hump until we had her do this limbic retraining, which calms down the nervous system and immune system. And uh, the program we use from Ashik Gupta has been published, so it, it does have some validity behind it. But it was only when she did this that she get over her chronic distension, bloating, and high degree of supplement and food reactivity. Um, so yeah, we're always trying to get better, um, and it's it's that smaller subset for whom we're always trying to reduce our blind spot, while at the same time we're trying to be as efficient and as cost effective as we can for the other patients meaning you know, not doing $3,000 worth of lab work when $600 worth of lab work will do. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't know. Are there any, uh, so, so which conditions do you feel like you're having the most success with? Is it thyroid-related issues and IBS and gut-related issues, or are there other ones that you're having like a surprising high level of success with? Well, definitely digestive issues, but the thing that eludes many is that things like brain fog, fatigue, depression, and insomnia kind of this neurological constellation, if you will, are oftentimes driven by what's happening in the gut. So that's, that's one of the, 
surprising, I guess, silver linings to becoming very competent at gut health is that we're really able to help many mood disorders, cognition and brain fog, fatigue, and also challenges with sleeping as one. And then the other, and especially as we've been integrating limbic retraining, would be these patients who tend to be anxious, worried, hyperreactive to food supplements and environment. And again, the limbic retraining has been very helpful there. And then with the gut, we've been able to help many patients who were uh, either incorrectly diagnosed as thyroid or correctly diagnosed and on medication, but not responding symptomatically to their medication because a concomitant issue in the gut has been present and simply addressing that issue in the gut allows them to respond better to the medication and see their symptoms uh, you know, be, be addressed. Very good. So for listeners, if they have these issues, obviously they should consider you know, contacting you. What's, what are some of the ways that people can get in touch? You know, how do they find your podcast and you know, start to get into your orbit so they can see what you can do? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, maybe the, or one, one place to start, if someone wants a do-it-yourself approach, would be Healthy Gut, Healthy You. I, I wrote that book in attempts to give people everything that they need and everything we advise our patients on in the clinic in this kind of stepwise, personalized fashion you know, in a do-it-yourself book. So Healthy Gut, Healthy You is one resource that's available for people. And then drrusho.com, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. It's my website where people can look at our blog and track down our podcast. And they can also find information about our clinic there if they need help. And yeah, just, you know, more than happy to help anyone and, you know, potentially save them from what happened to me when I was in my early twenties. I spent a lot of money on trying to throw supplements at my symptoms and I just needed the right, you know, guidance to, to get me through that quickly or as quickly as, as, you know, one could expect. So more than happy to help anyone who's in need and really appreciative of, uh, of the conversation, Richard. Yeah. Dr. Russo, it was good to talk to you and thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, you too. Thank you again. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.